Section 14 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 14. Letters from 1881-1882. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, September 1881. There has been quite a little flutter of excitement in the garrison during the past week, brought about by a short visit from the Marquis of Lome and his suite. As Governor-General of Canada, he has been inspecting his own military posts, and then came on down across the line to Shaw, en route to Dillon, where he will take the cars for the east. Colonel Knight is in command, so it fell upon him to see that Lord Lomay was properly provided for, which he did by giving up absolutely for his use his own elegantly furnished quarters. Lord Lomay took possession at once and quietly dined there that evening with one or two of his staff and Colonel Knight as his guest. The members of the suite were entertained by different officers of the garrison, and Captain Percival of the Second Life Guards was our guest. They were escorted across the line to this post by a company of Canadian mounted police, and a brave appearance those redcoats made as they rode on the parade ground and formed two lines through which the Governor-General and his staff rode, with the booming of cannon. Colonel Knight went out to meet them, escorted by our mounted infantry in command of Lieutenant Todd. The horses of the mounted police were very small, and inferior in every way to the animals one would expect the Canadian government to provide, and it did look very funny to see the gorgeously dressed police, with their jaunty side-tilted caps, riding such wretched little beasts. Our officers were on the parade to receive the governor-general, and the regimental band was there also, playing all sorts of things. Presently, without stop, and as though it was the continuation of a melody, the first notes of God Save the Queen were heard. Instantly the head of every Englishman and Canadian was uncovered, quietly and without ostentation, or slightest break in handshaking and talking. It was like a military movement by bugle call. Some of us who were looking on through filmy curtains thought it a beautiful manifestation of loving loyalty. They were at a military post of another nation, in the midst of being introduced to its officers, yet not one failed to remember and to remind that he was an Englishman ever. Mrs. Gordon saved me the worry of preparing an elaborate dinner at this faraway place by inviting us and our guests to dine with her and her guests. I am inclined to think that this may have been a shrewd move on the part of the dear friend so she could have hanged to assist her own cook at her dinner. It was a fine arrangement at all events, and pleased me most of all. I made the salad and arranged the table for her. Judging from what I saw and heard, Hang was having a glorious time. He had evidently frightened the old colored cook into complete idiocy, and was ordering her about in a way that only a Chinaman knows." The dinner was long, but delicious and enjoyable in every way. Lord Bagot, the Reverend Dr. MacGregor, Captain Chatter, and others of the Governor-General staff were there, 
sixteen of us in all. Captain Percival sat at my right, of course, and the amount he ate was simply appalling, and the appetites of Lord Bagot and the others were equally fine. Course after course disappeared from their plates, not a scrap left on them, until one wondered how it was managed. Soon after dinner, everyone went to Colonel Knight's quarters, where Lord Lomay was holding a little reception. He is a charming man, very simple in his manner, and one could hardly believe that he is the son-in-law of a great queen and heir to a splendid dukedom. He had announced that he would start at ten o'clock the next morning, so I ordered breakfast at nine. A mounted escort from the post was to go with him to Dillon in command of Fay. It has always seemed so absurd and really unkind for Americans to put aside our own ways and customs when entertaining foreigners, and bore them with wretched representations of things of their own country, thereby preventing them from seeing life as it is here. So I decided to give our English captain an out-and-out -out American breakfast, not long or elaborate, but dainty and nicely served, and I invited Miss Mills to meet him to give it a little life. Well, nine o'clock came, and so did Miss Mills. So did half after nine come, and then finally ten o'clock, but Captain Percival did not come. I was becoming very cross, for half an hour before I had sent Hang up to call him, knowing that he and Fay also were obliged to be ready to start at ten o'clock. I was worried, too, fearing that Fay would have to go without any breakfast at all. Of course, the nice little breakfast was ruined. Soon after ten, however, our guest came down, and apologized very nicely, said that the bed was so very delightful he simply could not leave it. Right there I made a mental resolution to the effect that, if ever a big Englishman should come to my house to remain overnight, I would have just one hour of delight taken from that bed. To my great amusement, also pleasure, Captain Percival ate heartily of everything, and kept on eating, and with such apparent relish I began to think that possibly it might be another case of delight, and finally to wonder if Hang had anything in reserve. Once he said, What excellent cooks you have here! This made Miss Mills smile, for she knew that Hang had been loaned out the evening before. Faye soon left us to attend to matters in connection with the trip, but the three of us were having a very merry time, for Captain Percival was a most charming man, when in the room came Captain Shader, his face as black as the proverbial thundercloud, and after speaking to me, looked straight and reprovingly at Captain Percival and said, You are keeping His Excellency waiting. That was like a bomb to all, and in two seconds the English captains had shaken hands and were gone. The mounted police are still at the post, and I suspect that this is because their commander is having such a pleasant time driving and dining with his hostess, who is one of our most lovely and fascinating women. I received a note from Faye this morning from Helena. He says that so far the trip has been delightful, and that in every way and by all he is being treated as an honored guest. Lord Lomay declined a large reception in Helena because the United States is in mourning for its murdered president. What an exquisite rebuke to some of our ignorant Americans.
Faye writes that Lord Lomay and members of his staff are constantly speaking in great praise of the officers' wives at Shaw, and have asked if the ladies throughout the army are as charming and cultured as those here. Our young horses are really very handsome now, and their red coats are shining from good grooming and feeding. They are large and perfectly matched in size, color, and gait, as they should be since they are half-brothers. I am learning to drive now a single horse, and find it very interesting, but not one half as delightful as riding. I miss a saddle horse dreadfully. Now and then I ride George, my own horse, but he always reminds me that his proper place is in the harness by making his gait just as rough as possible. End of letter. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, December 1881. You will be greatly surprised to hear that Faye has gone to Washington. His father is very ill so dangerously so that a thirty days' leave was telegraphed Faye from department headquarters without his having applied for it so as to enable him to get to Admiral Ray without delay. Someone in Washington must have asked for the leave. It takes so long for letters to reach us from the east that one never knows what may be taking place there. Faye started on the next stage to Helena and at Dillon will take the cars for Washington. Faye went away the night before the entertainment, which made it impossible for me to be in the pantomime, Villikins, and Dinah. So little Miss Gordon took my place and acted remarkably well, notwithstanding she had rehearsed only twice. The very stage that carried Faye from the post brought to us Mr. Hughes of Benton for a few days, but this turned out very nicely, for Colonel and Mrs. Mills, who know him well, were delighted to have him go to them and there he is now. The next day I invited Miss Mills and Mr. Hughes to dine with me informally, and while I was in the dining-room, attending to the few pieces of extra china and silver that would be required for dinner, a Chinaman has no idea of the fitness of things, Volmer, our striker, came in and said to me that he would like to take the horses and the single buggy out for an hour or so, as he wanted to show them to a friend. I saw at once that he and I were to have our usual skirmish. There is one always whenever Faye is away any length of time. The man has a frightful temper, and a year ago shot and killed a deserter. He was acquitted by military court and later by civil court, both courts deciding that the shooting was accidental. But the deserter was a Catholic, and Volmer is a Quaker, so the feeling in the company was so hostile toward him that for several nights he was put in the guardhouse for protection. Then Faye took him as striker, and has befriended him in many ways. But those colts he could not drive. So I told him that the horses could not go out during the lieutenant's absence, unless I went with them. He became angry at once, and said that it was the first team he had ever taken care of that he was not allowed to drive as often as he pleased. A big story, of course. But I said to him quietly, You heard what I said, Volmer, and further discussion will be quite useless. You were never permitted to take the colts out when Lieutenant Ray was here, and now that he is away, you certainly cannot do so. And I turned back to my spoons and forks. Volmer went out of the room, 
but I had an uncomfortable feeling that matters were not settled. In a short time I became conscious of loud talking in the kitchen, and could distinctly hear Volmer using most abusive language about Faye and me. That was outrageous, and not to be tolerated a second, and without stopping to reason that it would be better not to hear, and let the man talk his anger off, out to the kitchen I went. I found Volmer perched upon one end of a large wood box that stands close to a door that leads out to a shed. I said, Volmer, I heard what you have been saying, as you intended I should, and now I tell you to go out of this house and stay out until you can speak respectfully of Lieutenant Ray and of me. But he sat still and looked sullen and stubborn. I said again, go out and out of the yard too, but he did not move one inch. By that time I was furious, and going to the door that was so close to the man he could have struck me, I opened it wide, and pointing out with outstretched arm, I said, You go instantly. And instantly he went. Chinamen are awful cowards, and with the first word I said to the soldier, Hang had shuffled to his own room, and there he had remained until he heard Volmer go out of the house. Then he came back, and looking at me with an expression of the most solemn pity, said, He velly bad man, he killy man, he killy you, maybe. The poor heathen was evidently greatly disturbed, and so was I too. Not because I was at all afraid of being killed, but because of the two spirited young horses that still required most careful handling, and Faye might be away several months. I knew that the commanding officer, also the quartermaster, would look after them and do everything possible to assist me, but at the same time I knew that there was not a man in the post who could take Volmer's place with the horses. He is a splendid whip and perfect groom. I could not send them to Mr. Vaughn's to run, as they had been blanketed for a long time, and the weather was cold. Of course, I cried a little, but I knew that I had done quite right, that it was better for me to regulate my own affairs than to call upon the company commander to do so for me. I returned to the dining-room, but soon there was a gentle knock on the door, and, opening it, I saw Volmer standing in front of me, cap in hand, looking very meek and humble. Very respectfully he apologized and expressed his regret at having offended me, that was very pleasant, but knowing the man's violent temper and thinking of coming days, I proceeded to deliver a lecture to the effect that there was not another enlisted man in the regiment who would use such language in our house, or be so ungrateful for kindness that we had shown him, above all to make it unpleasant for me when I was alone. I was so nervous, and talking to a soldier that way was so disagreeable, I might have broken down and cried again, an awful thing to have done at that time, if I had not happened to see Hang's head sticking out at one side of his door. He had run to his room again, but could not resist keeping watch to see if Volmer was really intending to killing me. He is afraid of the soldier, and consequently hates him. Soon after he came, Volmer, 
who is a powerful man, tied him down to his bed with a picket rope, and such yells of fury and terror were never heard. And when I ran out to see what on earth was the matter, the Chinaman's eyes were green, and he was frothing at the mouth. For days after I was afraid that Hang would do some mischief to the man. It is the striker's duty always to attend to the fires throughout the house, and this Volmer is doing very nicely. But when Faye went away, he told Hang to take good care of me, so he also fixes the fires, and at the same time shows his dislike for Volmer, who will bring the big wood in and make the fires as they should be. Just as soon as he goes out, however, in marches Hang, with one or two small pieces of wood on his silk sleeve, and then, with much noise, he turns the wood in the stove upside down and stirs things up generally, after which he will put in the little sticks and let it all roar until I am quite as stirred up as the fire. After he closes the dampers, he will say to me in his most amiable squeak, Me fixie him, he velly good now. This is all very nice as long as the house does not burn. Night before last, Mrs. Mills invited me to a family dinner. Colonel Mills was away, but Mr. Hughes was there, also Lieutenant Harvey, to whom Miss Mills is engaged, and the three Mills boys making a nice little party. But I felt rather sad Faye was still en route to Washington and going further from home every hour, and it was impossible to tell when he might return. Mrs. Mills seemed distraught too when I first got to the house, but she soon brightened up and was as animated as ever. The dinner was perfect. Colonel Mills is quite an epicure, and he and Mrs. Mills have a reputation for serving choice and dainty things on their table. We returned to the little parlor after dinner and were talking and laughing when something went bang, like the hard shutting of a door. Mrs. Mills jumped up instantly and exclaimed, I knew it, I knew it, and rushed to the back part of the house, the rest of us running after her. She went on through to the Chinaman's room, and there, on his cot, lay the little man, his face even then the color of old ivory. He had fired a small derringer straight to his heart and was quite dead. I did not like to look at the dying man, so I ran for the doctor, and almost bumped against him at the gate as he was passing. There was nothing that he could do, however. Mrs. Mills told us that Sam had been an inveterate gambler, that he had won a great deal of money from the soldiers, particularly one who had that very day threatened to kill him, accusing the Chinaman of having cheated. The soldier probably had no intention of doing anything of the kind, but said it to frighten the timid heathen, just for revenge. Sam had eaten a little dinner, and was eating ice cream evidently, when something or somebody made him go to his room and shoot himself. The next morning the Chinaman in the garrison buried him, not in the post-cemetery, but just outside. Upon the grave they laid one or two suits of clothing, shoes, all Chinese of course, and a great quantity of food, much of it of their own fruits. That was for his spirit until he reached the happy land. The coyotes ate the food, but a Chinaman would never believe that. So more food was taken out this morning. 
They are such a queer people. Hang's breakfast usually consists of a glass of cold water with two or three lumps of sugar dissolved in it and a piece of bread broken in it also. When it is necessary for Hang to be up late and do much extra work, I always give him a can of salmon, of which he seems very fond, or a chicken, and tell him to invite one or two friends to sit with him. This smooths away all little frowns and keeps things pleasant. Volmer killed the chicken once, and Hang brought it to me with eyes blazing, said it was poor. He old hen! So I found that the only way to satisfy the suspicious man was to let him select his own fowl. He always cooks it in the same way, boils it with Chinese fruits and herbs, and with the head and feet on, and I must admit that the odor is appetizing. But I have never tasted it, although Hang has never failed to save a nice piece for me. He was with Mrs. Pierce two years, and it was some time before I could convince him that this house was regulated my way and not hers. Major Pierce was promoted to another regiment, and we miss them very much. End of letter. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, July 1882. The garrison seems lonesome since the two companies have been out, and I am beginning to feel that I am at home alone quite too much. Faye was in Washington two months, and almost immediately after he got back, he was ordered to command the paymaster's escort from Helena here, and now he is off again for the summer. The camp is on Birch Creek, not far from the Pegan Agency. The agents become frightened every now and then and ask for troops, more because they know the Indians would be justified in giving trouble than because there is any. An officer is sent from the post to inspect all the cattle and rations that are issued to them. Yet there is much cheating. Once it was discovered that a very inferior brand of flour was being given the Indians, that sacks with the lettering and marks of the brand the government was supposed to issue to them had been slipped over the sacks which really held the inferior flour, and carefully tied. Just imagine the trouble someone had taken. But there had been a fat reward, of course, and then where had those extra sacks come from? Where had the fine flour gone? Someone could have explained it all. I must admit, however, that anyone who has seen an Indian use flour would say that the most inferior grade would be good enough for them, to be mixed in dirty old pans with still dirtier hands. This lack of cleanliness and appreciation of things by the Indians makes stealing from them very tempting. The very night after the troops had gone out there was an excitement in the garrison, and, as usual, I was mixed up in it, not through my own choosing, however. I had been at Mrs. Palmer's playing whist during the evening, and about eleven o'clock two of the ladies came down to the house with me. The night was the very darkest I ever saw, and of this we spoke as we came along the walk. Almost all the lights were out in the officers' quarters, making the whole post seem dismal, and as I came in the house and locked the door, I felt as if I could never remain here until morning. Hang was in his room, of course, but would be no protection whatever if anything should happen. Major and Mrs. Stokes have not yet returned from the east, 
so the adjoining house is unoccupied, and on my right is Mrs. Norton, who is alone also, as Dr. Norton is in camp with the troops. She had urged me to go to her house for the night, but I did not go because of the little card party. I ran upstairs as though something evil was at my heels, and bolted my door, but did not fasten the dormer windows that run out on the roof in front. Before retiring, I put a small lighted lantern in a closet, and left the door open just a little, thinking that the streak of light would be cheering, and the lantern would give me a light quickly if I should need one. Our breakfast had been very early that morning, on account of the troops marching, and I was tired and fell asleep immediately, I think. After a while I was conscious of hearing someone walking about in the room corresponding to mine in the next house, but I dozed on, thinking to myself that there was no occasion for feeling nervous, as the people next door were still up. But suddenly I remembered that the house was closed, and just then I distinctly heard someone go down the stairs. I kept very still and listened, but heard nothing more, and soon went to sleep again. But again I was awakened, this time by queer noises, like someone walking on a roof. There were voices, too, as if someone was mumbling to himself. I got the revolver and ran to the middle of the room, where I stood ready to shoot or run. It would probably have been run in any direction. I finally got courage to look through a side window, feeling quite sure that Mrs. Norton was out with her Chinaman, looking after some choice little chickens left in her care by the doctor. But not one light was to be seen in any place, and the inky blackness was awful to look upon. So I turned away, and, just as I did so, something cracked and rattled down over the shingles and then fell to the ground. But which roof those sounds came from was impossible to tell. With goose flesh on my arms and each hair on my head trying to stand up, I went back to the middle of the room, and there I stood, every nerve quivering. I had been standing there hours, or possibly it was only two short minutes, when there was one loud, piercing shriek that made me almost scream too, but after it was perfect silence, so I said to myself that probably it had been a cat, that I was nervous and silly. But there came another shriek, another and still another, so expressive of terror that the blood almost froze in my veins. With teeth chattering and limbs shaking so I could hardly step, I went to a front window, and raising it, I screamed, Corporal of the Guard! I saw the sentinel at the guardhouse stop, as though listening in front of a window where there was a light, and seeing one of the guard gave strength to my voice, and I called again. That time the sentry took it up and yelled, Corporal of the Guard, number one. Instantly, lanterns were seen coming in our direction. Ever so many of the guard came, and to our gate as they saw me at a window. But I sent them on to the next house, where they found poor Mrs. Norton in a white heap on the grass, quite unconscious. The officer of the day was still up and came running to see what the commotion was about, and several other officers came, 
Colonel Gregory, a punctilious gentleman of the old school, who is in command just now, appeared in a striking costume, consisting of a skimpy evening gown of white, a dark military blouse over that, and a pair of military riding boots, and he carried an unsheathed sabre. He is very tall and thin, and his hair is very white, and I laugh now when I think of how funny he looked. But no one thought of laughing at that time. Mrs. Norton was carried in, and her house searched throughout. No one was found, but burned matches were on the floor of one or two rooms, which gave evidence that someone had been there. In the yard back of the house a pair of heavy overshoes, also government socks, were found. So it was decided that the man had climbed up on the roof and entered the house through a dormer window that had not been fastened. No one would look for the piece of shingle that night, but in the morning I found it on the ground close to the house. All the time the search was being made I had been in the window. Colonel Mills insisted that I should go to his house for the remainder of the night, but suggested that I put some clothes on first. It occurred to me then, for the first time, that my own costume was rather striking, not quite the proper thing for a balcony scene. Everyone was more than kind, but for a long time after Miss Mills and I had gone to her room, my teeth chattered and big tears rolled down my face. Mrs. Norton declares that I was more frightened than she was, and I say, yes, probably, but you did not stop to listen to your own horrible screams, and then, after making us believe that you were being murdered, you quietly dropped into oblivion and forgot the whole thing. Just as the entire garrison had become quiet once more, bang, went a gun, and then again we heard people running about to see what was the matter, and if the burglar had been caught, but it proved to have been the accidental going off of a rifle at the guardhouse. The instant that Colonel Gregory ascertained that a soldier had really been in Mrs. Norton's house, check roll call was ordered. That is, the officer of the day went to the different barracks and ordered the first sergeants to get the men up and call the roll at once, without warning or preparation. In that way it was ascertained if the men were on their cots or out of quarters. But that night every man was present or accounted for. At the hospital roll call was not necessary, but they found an attendant playing possum. A lantern held close to his face did not waken him, although it made his eyelids twitch, and they found that his heart was beating at a furious rate. His clothes had been thrown down on the floor, but socks were not to be found with them. So he is the man suspected. He will get his discharge in three days, and it is thought that he was after a suit of citizen clothes of the doctors. Not so very long ago he was their striker. No one in the garrison has ever heard of an enlisted man troubling the quarters of an officer, and it is something that rarely occurs. I spend every night with Mrs. Norton now, who seems to have great confidence in my ability to protect her, as I can use a revolver so well. She calmly sleeps on, while I remain awake listening for footsteps. The fact of my having been at a military post when it was attacked by Indians, that a man was murdered 
directly under my window when I heard every shot, every moan, and my having had two unpleasant experiences with horse thieves has not been conducive to normal nerves after dark. During all the commotion at Mrs. Norton's the night the man got in her house, her Chinaman did not appear. One of the officers went to his room in search of the burglar and found him, the Chinaman, sitting up in his bed, almost white from fear. He confessed to having heard someone in the kitchen, and when asked why he did not go out to see who it was, indignantly replied, What for? He go away? What for I see him? I feel completely upset without a good saddle horse. George is developing quite a little speed in single harness, but I do not care for driving, feel too much as though I was part of the little buggy instead of the horse. Major and Mrs. Stokes are expected soon from the east, and I shall be so glad to have my old neighbors back. End of letter. End of section 14.